on tonight's KRBD Evening Report. Ketchikan's school board will review behind closed doors the findings of an investigation into allegations of racism in the stands at a recent basketball game. Plus, authorities have recovered the body of a longtime Myers Chuck community member after he was reported overdue from a boat trip. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Tonight, rain with lows around 40 and southeast winds to 10 miles an hour. Tomorrow, Friday, rain with highs in the mid-40s and southeast winds to 15 miles an hour. Friday night, widespread rain showers with lows in the mid-30s and southeast winds to 15 miles an hour. On Saturday, rain showers are likely with highs around 40 and light winds. On Saturday night, cloudy with lows around 30 and light winds. It's the KRBD Evening Report. I'm Eric Stone. Ketchikan's school board will review the district's investigation into allegations of racism in the stands at a high school basketball game against the Metlakatla Chiefs. That's according to Interim Superintendent Melissa Johnson. She says the school district recently completed its investigation into the February 5th basketball game against Metlakatla High School on the state's only native reservation. A probe was launched following complaints of Ketchikan Pep Club members dressed in Western wear. Some accused the Ketchikan fans of antagonizing their longtime rivals by stereotyping themselves as cowboys and their opponents as Indians. The Pep Club apologized last week. In an interview, senior Pep Club member Colin Hudoff said the club meant no harm and regretted the pain the incident had caused. We are sorry for, for what's happened, and, and if we could go back and, and change the country theme and, and anything that happened that was any sort of offensive or, or known as racism, then we would. Some in the audience alleged they'd heard stereotypical war cries during the game. Hudoff says he didn't hear anything of that nature. But the Pep Club has acknowledged barking during free throws. Senior Pep Club member Dylan Nedzwicki said it's something they do to distract the opposing players. He says it had nothing to do with the Western theme or their opponents. We've done it the whole season. No, like, malicious intent. It's just a noise we can all do that we know how to do to try to throw off the other team. Ketchikan's interim superintendent, Melissa Johnson, tells KRBD in an email that she will brief the school board on February 23rd behind closed doors on the district's probe of the incident. Johnson said personnel and disciplinary matters are confidential. It's unclear whether any findings of the district's investigation would be made public. Johnson declined to immediately answer questions. The controversy has opened a conversation about racism in the wider community. Tribal leaders in Ketchikan, Juno, and Metlakatla have denounced the Ketchikan High School fans' antics. Authorities have recovered the body of a man who went missing in his skiff outside a remote southeast Alaska community Tuesday afternoon. 83-year-old Stephen Peavy lived in the hamlet of Myers Chuck, about 35 miles northwest of Ketchikan. Alaska state troopers say he died after failing to return home by nightfall on Tuesday. Peavy was reported overdue Wednesday morning. The U.S. Coast Guard launched a vessel and helicopter to assist in the search. A U.S. Forest Service boat from Prince of Wales Island also assisted the troopers. Peavy's skiff was found heavily damaged on rocks outside Myers Chuck later that day. PV's body was located soon afterwards. His next of kin have been notified of his death, troopers say. PV had lived in the community of Myers Chuck nearly his whole life, having moved there in 1949 at the age of seven. That's according to a profile in Alaska Magazine. He and his wife Cassie, who works as Myers Chuck's postmistress, were also featured in a NPR profile of the small community in 2017. A new oversight board tasked with revitalizing Alaska's state-run ferry system met for the first time last Friday. There's new opportunity from the promise of hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funds expected to flow into the system. But as Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, there are difficult decisions ahead on how best to invest the money. Shirley Marquardt, 
a former executive director of the Marine Highway, was selected to chair the Alaska Marine Highways Operations Board. The board was created by unanimous consent of the Alaska legislature last year. The former Unalaska mayor remarked that the combination of federal funding and united support for the ferry system is an opportunity to finally modernize the fleet. You know, this is a chance to take, you know, to take our older vessels that have just completely outused their their life cycle, but we keep putting millions and millions and millions. And in the time we're doing that, we're leaving passengers sitting at the dock, you know, for weeks late. And we're, we're you know, the morale of employees is going down the tank because they're just, you know, they're stuck. The new board includes appointees from both the House and Senate, as well as the governor. It replaces the now-defunct Marine Transportation Advisory Board, which had little practical authority. And that looks less likely to be the case with the new group. Member Keith Hillard, a captain of the Matanuska Ferry, was nominated by the three ferry unions. He complained of poor maintenance planning and a lack of coordination from shoreside management for recent snafus. I'm not going to speak for every captain and chief engineer, but um, us going into the yard with the Matanus this year, the chief engineer and I had no idea of what was planned, what work was planned, what was scoped uh, going into the yard. He says repairs are routinely delayed due to cost cutting. That leads to deferred maintenance until it snowballs. The Matanuska's scheduled eight-week overhaul took nearly 17 weeks due to rotted steel, and that led to cancellations across the region. Another challenge facing the ferry system is a crew shortage. More than 70% of entry-level stewards' jobs are vacant. Marine Highway General Manager John Falvey told the board that the entire maritime industry is struggling with crew. We are working very hard to try to hire more vessel staff back. We've, we, we've lost you know, quite a few from COVID, things like that. We've got a pretty aggressive uh, uh, marketing campaign in place. We're working very, very closely with uh, uh, the Department of Labor. Unlicensed crew members don't have guaranteed work hours. And so when ships are laid up for cost-cutting or go into overhaul, Keith Hillard, the ferry captain, says they are left high and dry. They pretty much get a forced four-month layoff, and unfortunately, a lot of them find year-round jobs during that time and don't come back. Reforming the organizational structure of the Marine Highway is also something the Oversight Board may tackle. Proposals have been floated to create a public corporation or a ferry authority with more autonomy from the executive branch. It would also allow long-range funding rather than going to the legislature each year. John Falvey, the Marine Highway's top operations official for nearly 18 years, admitted these are all conversations worth having. You know, I mean, we have processes, but are they, you know, are they are they the best way to be doing it? You know, and, and we've been doing it a certain way for a long time, but maybe we got to retool and, 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 and try to do things differently. And, and I know that. Governor Dunleavy has proposed using $135 million in federal money to fund the ferry system in the coming year. That would reduce the state's contribution to zero. That idea has already received pushback. Southeast Conference, a regional civic and industry organization that advocates for economic development, passed a resolution earlier this month calling on the Dunleavy administration to primarily invest the federal funds into long-term needs of the ferry system, Executive Director Robert Venables made that pitch to the operations board. We know that some of those funds should be and need to be used for operations, but at the same time, we want to find that balance between just consuming those funds and using those funds for long-term investments. Ferry operations board members expressed interest in meeting frequently for shorter meetings, and it could hold its next session later this month. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. 
The 30-year-old Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, also known as NAGPRA, was passed to give tribes a legal avenue for the return of ancestral remains and some cultural objects. But many remain in storage and in collections of federal agencies and museums. As KNBA's Trip Krauss reports, several agency and tribal officials spoke to a Senate committee about where the law falls short. During a federal hearing on a 30-year-old law designed to give indigenous tribes a path toward getting cultural items and ancestral remains back, lawmakers learned how they could make the law better. Rosita Wuerl has a Ph.D. in anthropology and served on a National NAGPRA Review Committee for 12 years. She told a U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs that tribes spend a lot of time trying to work their way through this process, and it doesn't always pay off. Tribes go to a great deal of efforts and expense to bring the case before the committee, a committee comprised of scientists, museum professionals, and tribal members, without any guarantee that the committee's finding will be acted upon. Four, describe a discrete category of funding to support disputes. And then increase NAGPRA funding for tribes and museums. I know that this is a... Federally recognized tribes in the lower 48 can initiate claims, and for about 20 years, Alaska Native corporations were eligible as well. But that changed when the National Park Service declared them ineligible. Alaska's tribal organizations, management, and Alaska Native corporations create complicated bureaucracy for indigenous communities looking to return sacred objects. And in our region, repatriation claims came to all but a stop except for our our one regional tribe. So it's been a, a loss for us that we have not been able to continue this important work of seeking the returns of our sacred objects and, and our ancestors. World says Alaska Native corporations should be eligible to initiate repatriation claims. Other people who testified encouraged shifting oversight of NAGPRA to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Currently, much of the work is handled by the Interior Department's National Park Service. Joy Beasley is the Associate Director of Cultural Resources, Partnership, and Sciences at the Interior Department. The Department of the Interior is aware of the inconsistencies with uh, the way that the law is interpreted and applied uh, across the United States, including, including among federal agencies. Uh, and we believe that the proposed regulatory changes will uh, go a long ways towards clarifying the roles and responsibilities um, of federal agencies, uh, as well as clarifying the timelines and the other requirements. So we're, we're certainly aware of the issue, and, and we hope that the, uh, the proposed regulations will, will address some of those challenges. The Interior Department hired a full-time employee to investigate NAGPRA claims and violations of the law in late January. In addition to better oversight, some federal officials say there should be more funding available. From 1990 to 2020, about $50 million have been awarded to help with repatriation efforts. Anna Maria Ortiz is the Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. That office made several recommendations to improve NAGPRA in 2010. One of our recommendations was that agencies um, really figure out what they needed to do to implement the act properly and um, develop timelines for doing so. Ortiz said the office got estimates from some federal departments that it could take decades and millions of dollars to go through all of their collections and figure out what they have that could be given back to tribes. And in many cases, agencies estimated that it would cost hundreds of thousands or even millions more than they currently had appropriated to implement the act um, effectively. One of the key contested points of the recommended changes to NAGPRA is how long it takes to consult with tribes after an artifact or remains are discovered. 
Worrell says affected tribes should be contacted immediately within three days and not later after an agency performs its own inquiries and studies. Consulting and informing tribal members immediately upon the discovery of any kind of human remains, that must remain in place. And I am concerned that there may be some changes in the, in the resolution, in the procedures, the proposed rules that may alter that. We need to make sure that we, that tribes are there right away and that we have a say in any kind of inadvertent discoveries. In addition to the revisions to NAGPRA under consideration, another bill would make it illegal to export native cultural items without proper authorization. The Safeguard Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act is currently in the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. In Anchorage, I'm Trip J. Krause. That is all for tonight's edition of the KRBD Evening Report. Thanks so much for joining us. You can get the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app or on your smart speaker by asking it to play the KRBD Evening Report. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Eric Stone. <laughs>